to the June episode of the Peds Ortho podcast, official uh, podcast of POSNA. Um, We are back with the full contingent. Um, As always, uh, I am Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt University. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. And this is Josh Holt from the University of Iowa. And I'm Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital of Colorado. Awesome. And today we have a special guest with us, uh, our pop star of the month, uh, Todd Milbrandt. He's a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at Mayo Clinic. And we'll get a little bit more detailed bio later, but Todd, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great. It's great to see everybody. And uh, it was great to see everybody at the annual meeting. So thank you for putting me on the podcast. Love the enthusiasm. I was actually going to get some comments from the crew on the annual meeting. Um, First of all, Julia, we missed you dearly. I want to know, did you, obviously, I want to hear how much you missed us. I also want to know if you listened to the live session and what you thought since you weren't, um, you were kind of outside of that. Yeah, I obviously missed you guys so much and I was devastated (laughs) I wasn't there. Um, I had severe FOMO the whole time, but um, uh, yeah, I did listen and I think it was great. You know, we had done a lot of brainstorming as a group about how to make that um, enjoyable, both in person and on the podcast. And of course, I'm a little biased. Uh, so I'm interested, of course, for anybody else's feedback that wants to to email us or send that in. Um, but I thought it went great. You know, it was it was fun to listen to. And I think you could definitely get something from it, even if you weren't able to join you guys in person. So I missed you and uh, I won't miss one again. Promise that. Um, any other thoughts from the rest of the group on uh, what, what your best thing about the meeting was for you? Uh, maybe Todd, what was your favorite part about the meeting? Um, well, there are many, many parts. The first and foremost was all of my national friends that I, you know, that's the like the perk of being an academic person. So you have lots of negatives Uh, You know, you have bureaucracy, you have learners that you might not be getting along with. You might have, you know, people you have to convince to do things with your power of persuasion. But the positives are that you get to have this family and friends that live across the United States and potentially the world that you can see and set and have dinner with or have a beer with if that's what you're into. But by far, my favorite moment was when I got to host the best papers award session on Friday with one of my best friends, Michelle cared. Um, she and I literally met our first year in practice at the orthopedic educators course. And we have been friends ever since. And it's just been, it was just amazing to be able to share that moment with her. Our Posner journey has, has lots and lots of parallels and it was just great to, to, to be able to do that with one of your really good friends. That was a terrific session. Always one of the highlights of the meeting. Josh and Carter, any uh, anything to add? Catching up with Dr. Wanger at the Rady reunion. <laughs> Always enjoyable. Always yeah, enjoyable. Many, did you get any new quotes, Josh? <laughs> Not that can be repeated on the podcast. <laughs> uh, we, we should definitely cut this off at this point. <laughs> Josh, um, you want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of feedback and what's been going on with the podcast over the last yeah. month? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So all of you who are 
regular listeners of the podcast may be sick of us after last month. Uh, we did release nine episodes last month with all of the subspecial day meetings, the uh, young members forum and the April lit review session. Uh, we all had a enjoyable time recording those episodes. So we hope that you weren't too overwhelmed that you enjoyed them. The, the overall listening between those nine episodes certainly was the highest total number of listeners over a month, just because of the sheer volume of episodes. Um, but we certainly would like feedback. Um, you know, is that too overwhelming? Is it something we should try and space out even a month or maybe even two months before POSNA so we can get a few episode release over a few months um, or any other feedback you can give would be great on the live session that we had. Again, it was, it was a real good time to film the live session or to record it, but how it came across the airways is something different. So Julia, glad to know that you thought it went well, but any other feedback you guys can provide always at pedsorthopodcast at gmail.com. Um, we're always happy to hear positive, negative, whatever reviews you can provide. I was also going to add, you can, um, get to us on social media as well, uh, either through POSNA or you can tweet Carter or myself. You cannot tweet Julia or Josh because I believe they're not on Twitter, but I will happily give you their home addresses yes, uh, and you certainly. can mail them or pay them a visit. It's, a good, it's, it's a, with pictures. Yeah, good <laughs> season for the uh, carrier pigeons, both in Colorado and Iowa. So they'll be yes, receiving that. I right? take Pony Express mail only. So sorry. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think it is time for the main event. Bum, bum, bum. So Dr. Milbrandt, um, again, thank you for joining us. Uh, we are honored to have you. Um, you are, of course, a leader in POS and AOS. I can still remember my first uh, IPOS and POS meetings and remember seeing you on the podium and uh, serving as a mentor to us. You're a prolific researcher. I've seen over 100 publications to your name and probably more, and that's both clinical and basic science realm. Um, so you'll have a lot to add to our, uh, to our show today. Um, you've previously been featured on the interview with a PD Pod podcast uh, with Nick Fletcher doing a great interview and if anyone has not listened to that, I encourage you to, uh, to check it out. And um, also, I just more personal basis, uh, having talked to you at the meeting uh, a couple weeks ago, I came to understand you're, should I say prolific runner? Will you claim that title? Or maybe you were at one time? <laughs> What's your comment on that? I don't know. I would probably say a average runner. <laughs> but I do, li I do like actually riding my bike uh, more than running because it doesn't hurt as much now. Are you, uh, are you training for anything actively or have you done something recently? No, you know, the funny thing is I don't really race anymore because racing means that I fall down and hurt myself. So I like to keep myself upright um, and I like to be able to go. It's a good time for my wife and I to share time away from the house. So we ride our bikes on the road, on the mountain. We ride our bikes in the snow around here. So it is, uh, it's kind of like our thing to do together, which has been fun because we've done it all over the world and it keeps us active and trying to keep up with my two kids of which my youngest graduated from high school last weekend. So it is. Congratulations. Official. That's awesome. That's right. I am an empty nester. It's a totally different space. Don't ask me how it's going because I'll probably break down in tears in the fall. It took me two months when my oldest left, so it'll take me longer when my youngest does. So we'll say average runner, but a prolific family man. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask just for people to get to know you a little bit better. What is your favorite surgery to perform You know, right now in the last couple of years? Yeah, well, I mean, the easy answer is I'm a pediatric orthopedist, so I like them all. And I don't want to give any of them up. Um, 
one quick story. There's a, we have this quarters rotation with our residents meeting there with me and me only for three months. They don't rotate away from me. And so um, during that three month period of time, a resident two years ago, we did not repeat a single operation in that three months. We had something new every day. And uh, that I said at the end of the quarter, I said, this is pediatric orthopedics right there. It's, it's everywhere, everything top to bottom. Uh, but right now, probably it's the, the tether because we have a great team. We have fun doing it. We've gotten much more efficient about it. We can, we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But um, it's kind of fun to be on the cutting edge, yet still trying to make sure that we're doing it right. And we're trying to stay within those guardrails and being very thoughtful to make sure that we are studying what we're doing, which is a reflection of what one of the papers is, at least we're going to discuss here in a minute. And that's actually a perfect segue. Actually, before we get to that paper, though, I did want to ask, I did you, with IPOS being canceled this yeah. last year, are you still running IPOS for the upcoming year or where does that stand? Yeah, so um, the funny thing about that is that um, overall last year, I planned that meeting three times. I planned it for a live meeting. I planned it for a half virtual, half live meeting. And then I planned it for an all virtual meeting and then we canceled it all. And Sukin Shah, who is my co-director this year, you know, it was time for him to do it. And I've been involved in IPOS now, I think, for five years, kind of listening for one year and assisting and helping Don. And so, quite frankly, it's time for, you know, it's like any other job. It's time for somebody else to do it. And um, so this year, Sukin and I are doing our co-directors. Uh, luckily, I had a good plan starting because uh, I planned it last year. Um, but I'm really looking forward to that uh, amazing meeting where I actually think that um, it's the best meeting in all of orthopedics um, for many reasons. Um, but most of the reasons are that you get to be shoulder to shoulder with colleagues and your idols in orthopedics, and they'll actually sit down and chat with you. Um, again, I think that the magic sauce in IPOS are... Uh, interested, uh, talented faculty and interested and talented attendees that are very curious. So, uh, you know, I, I think that that combination, we put them together and they make the magic. We're just there trying to put the structure around it. I wanted to give you the opportunity to give a plug because uh, yeah. it is a great meeting. And um, I, I learned a lot from my time going there. And it sounds like this next one's going to be better than ever because it's been planned four times. So <laughs> <That's right>. uh, <laughs> that thing has been combed. <laughs> All the trainees and uh, young faculty out there, get yourself to, to IPOS. All right, um, we'll launch into the article. Um, the first one is um, from the May, uh, May episode or uh, version of Spine Deformity. So this one's titled Defining the Learning Curve in CT-Guided Navigated Thoroscopic Vertebral Body Tethering. Um, and this is from um, Smith and Matthew, uh, I think. Is that one of your uh, residents or fellows? Yeah, no, she's a fellow of ours that actually was a uh, our research coordinator. She is the first pediat female pediatric orthopedic surgeon trained in India. And uh, she came to the United States because her dad got sick. Uh, she then got her green card and is living here in the U.S. and wanted to restart her clinical career, which you guys all know can be very difficult for people who don't train in the United States. So she came with and was our research coordinator for two years. And then she's now doing a Gillette fellowship. But during that two years, she 
uh, started writing some of this information. And that's why she's going to be on a lot of these tether papers that you will see coming out from our system. Small plug, she's going to um, Children's Hospital in D.C. for her next fellowship and then a foot and ankle fellowship. So if anybody out there is looking for a pediatric foot and ankle specialist, she will be a great addition to anybody's practice going out there. Awesome. Always an advocate for your trainees. And then um, Noel Larson, Dean Potter, and yourself um, are on this article. So um, just to summarize, the purpose of this study was to assess the learning curve of your team doing vertebral body tethering. And you looked specifically at estimated blood loss, anesthesia time, operative time, also length of stay in the hospital and percent correction of the curve. Um, there were 67 patients that you reviewed who have done this strategy and you can analyze changes over time as well as did a comparison comparing the first 20 to your last 20. Um, the notable results, just so I don't want you to have to look it up, um, but the, uh, the estimated blood loss went from 282 to 116. OR time went from 4.8 hours to 3.3 hours. Anesthesia time cut down. And there was only one major, like, 90-day complication. This was a pearl effusion that required re-op, uh, readmission and catheter placement for drainage. Um, none in the last 20 cases or over the last two years. So the takeaway from the paper was that um, you've noted some um, tangible improvements in the efficiency with your VBT surgery, specifically using your CT-guided technique. So a couple of questions related to this. I think the most obvious is... Um, you know, the CT guided technique, um, is this something that you all pioneered and what was sort of the uh, impetus to do this? Why did you see the need to uh, change that? Well, you know, we, when we decided we were going to go down this journey, we both Dr. Larson, who is a major champion in this, I want to make sure that she gets a complete 50, 50 percentage of the credit of this uh, project. And also probably more like 75 hers, 25 me in terms of having enough guts to go through this. Uh, anytime, I mean, we can have lots of conversations about this, but trying something new and scary in your practice when you are uh, going out that you did not learn in your training um, is intimidating. And uh, she was the one that really uh, made sure that we did a very thoughtful approach to this. Uh, and we visited the centers that were doing this. So we went to Phil, she went to Philadelphia. I went to San Diego. We visited and we learned as much as we could about it. And then we have lots of experience at Mayo using the OARM. We have lots of access to OARM and um, kind of CT guided navigation within our program. We have, I think, four OARMs that we share amongst the neurosurgeons, us, and on the peace floor. And so we have readily have access to it. And we, we use it for all of our other spine surgeries. And we thought that the safest way to place these screws in our hands was to make sure that we knew where we were going in the axial plane. And so when we went to other centers, um, they use fluoroscopy to place these screws, which I think is fine in the AP and lateral plane, but as you know, you don't know where the canal is um, in theory with that. And so that's why I think that you've seen some of the other complications that have been listed like CSF leaks and other things. And that really is because of likely a little misinterpretation of where you are in the vertebral body and the CT guided navigation, which we show in the paper, some images really gives you that axial plane, which you can see. And so we thought that 
if we were going to do this in the safest way possible in a new technology, I wanted all the, the training wheels we could get. And that was uh, the one that we could put in. So that's why we did that part of it. I'm not sure that <clears throat> there's another big center doing it uh, that I've heard of. Uh, so I guess we are the pioneers in that part of it. Um, it does take an extra incision because we have to make a small incision over the spinous process in the back where we put our reference frame. That uh, is a small incision, you know, another small, the equivocal of a portal incision, but it's just within their midline. So that's that's why we chose that way. And quite frankly, we did one and we waited a, a full year before we did another one because we wanted to make sure that we knew what we were doing and what we were up against. And then once that one year was up, then we really started creating our own IDE and, um, you know, working with the FDA to make sure that we kind of were underneath their purview and also that we were making sure we were keeping track of all the data. This is not just going to be one of these retrospective things where we said, oops, we forgot to collect X, Y, or Z. We did that all on the upfront. So uh, in a thoughtful way. And so with that, we started getting more and more comfortable with it. And this paper is just a reflection of that learning curve. You know, learning curve papers are not new. They've been done in lots of things, PAOs, spine fusions, you know, early practice things. And we just thought that since this was out, we wanted to give some people some idea how long it would take them if they wanted to institute it at their, at their center. Where do you think that time gained came from? I mean, there's from looking at the numbers, you know, anesthesia time went from about seven and a half to about five and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, Your operative time went from 4.8 to 3.3. And so, uh, obviously, you shaved some off the operative time. It looks like a lot was shaved off just the the non-operative time in the OR. Yeah. So, I mean, what what are the different components? What do you guys think that you got faster at? Or do you have any idea? Did you break it down further than just those time points? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, our pediatric anesthesia team had some experience doing single lung ventilation because they do thoracoscopic work in pediatric things here. And so they had kind of a baseline understanding, but they weren't efficient at it. These were cases that they were doing, but not doing very often. As that got better, as their single inhalation got better, as their intrathecal injection and the paravertebral block got better, all that time shrunk up. And so that's why I think they're at their, at their, they became more familiar with those techniques. It got more efficient for them. And in reality, we have one champion uh, pediatric anesthesiologist that took this on and is very good and basically taught a few others. And now they are the ones that tend to do these cases with us and are much better at it. And in terms of how we got better, you know, a lot of it was exposure at first. We, um, we used at first an adult thoracic surgeon who is used to kind of opening up the chest, you know, and getting tumors, huge tumors out of adult patients. And so he would take his time and really uh, kind of really fillet the segmentals and the pleura and get it all around all the way up front. And then we learned you didn't really need that. You just needed these little tiny spots where you're going to put the screws. And as that, as we understarted to understand that and understand the techniques of how we could make the blood loss not be so much, then our general surgeon, we split them to a pediatric person and he's just faster because we said, Hey, you don't need to do this huge double stripe within the, uh, the plural. You could just do a single one. And he, his now exposure is down to 20 minutes In 20 minutes. He can get us down, down and through all the segmentals from a T5 to T12 kind of experience. Okay. 
And so, um, you know, I didn't hear you mention anywhere in there kind of a learning curve from a CT standpoint, which, right. you know, if anyone who has gone from freehand to CT knows there's a bit of a learning curve from the surgeon and the team. Sounds like at Mayo, you guys were already pretty familiar with that. So maybe there wasn't much. So do you think that your findings would be applicable to a group who is just learning it without the CT? Or do you think that there that some of your curve or improvement actually came from, you know, figuring out how to be more efficient with the navigation? Yeah, I think that our navigation is pretty slick from the beginning, just because we do it all the time. So if you don't do it, that's going to add even more time to your learning curve. Mm -hmm. So if you want to add this, I would say you might want to start using navigation in your own posterior spine fusions first, or what, you know, you don't have to use, I mean, I use some proprietary names, I use OR, but but, you know, if you use a different system, that's okay, too. Just get familiar with what that system is. And we now know how to do two spins during one cycle, so we don't have to bring the arm, the machine in twice. And by doing that, it really saves a lot of time. Um, and so those are the kind of things that we learned from our posterior spine fusion that then we translated to our, to our vertebral body tethering practice. But awesome. I, I personally think that... If you don't haven't done a lot of anterior spine surgery before, and since many of uh, newer people, you know, when I was going through thoracoscopic work was a big deal, and I did a lot in my fellowship, but that kind of all went away for a long time because you can do everything from the back. I mean, you can, it's so powerful posterior spine fusions. So if you've never really operated on the front, except for maybe some disc releases, having the CT uh, navigation really helps you understand the rotation component, which is where I think people might get in trouble and get into the canal in the back. And that's really what we're trying to prevent. Yeah, that is, um, that is good advice. And I think that personally, as we kind of launch our program at Vanderbilt, I'm um, considering how to incorporate the uh, CT nav in it um, because yeah. we're getting good at that with the spine fusions. I think kind of breaking away from your study, but just oh, yeah. getting your general thoughts on vertebral body tethering, you know, I feel like anyone who has had a study or talk on this lately, we've kind of asked, you know, what are the indications, et cetera. I, I guess I would be interested in somewhat on, you know, how you indicate patients for this at this stage with what we know about it. Um, but I think maybe getting into that a little bit more, what do you say to the families and patients? Like if you look at someone and you're like, they could be a candidate for this or they could get posterior spinal fusion. What do you say to those families or patients to kind of help them make that, that shared decision? You know, what do you tell them the yeah. pros and cons are and what is that conversation like? Yeah, you know, I think that it's really interesting and we are actually, stu we're studying this. We're creating a shared decision-making tool so that we can communicate better. And I think that pediatric orthopedics is right for this kind of work. Uh, if you're interested, Mayo has a whole group on shared decision-making on their website stuff. Uh, we have a group here that really videotapes us in the clinic and then we create these tools. So we're doing that for Tether because I think it's challenging. You know, a lot of these patients come to me with they are not leaving that office unless they are signed up for a Tether, right? I mean, they have, they have read the stuff on the Internet and that is what they are convinced is the best thing for them. And so in those patients, it's a different conversation than those that come in with a spinal curvature that meets surgical criteria, and you're introducing for the first time the idea of fusion versus tether. Because mm -hmm. I think in that, then it ends up being much more of a balanced conversation of, 
you know, here's the pros and the cons. And my little spiel goes with, if you want um, one operation, pretty much guaranteed, I mean, maybe a 10% chance and one that we have 20 year follow-up on that you choose posterior spinal fusion. If you want more motion and that's more important to you, but you run the risk of potentially needing another operation and you're okay with that risk, then maybe vertebral body tethering is what uh, is better for you and your values. I try, I really try hard not to sell it um, because I think that, you know, like anything in medicine, you want it to be the family's decision and not yours. You know, I'm, I'm here to be an educator in my clinic and not necessarily a dictator, but some families want that, you know? I mean, some families, they want you to say, if it's your 13-year-old, what are you going to do? Sure. And I think in, in those situations, if the child meets the criteria, which for me is Sanders four or less and somewhat curved between 40 and 60 that bends out less than 35 degrees, then I say I would do a tether. If they don't meet within that criteria, then I say, okay, well, then you need a posterior spinal fusion or you don't need anything yet. And we're going to wait for you to uh, mature into one of those things uh, one way or another. Perfect. I, I can see Carter and Josh, the wheels are spinning. Julia, I don't want to count you out either. Um, do you guys have yeah, any I'm gonna, questions? I'm going to take for, a minute. So, All right, yeah, that's go. awesome. I mean, I love this. I love this study. I love this thought. I love the idea of using the navigation. My hard decision is, you know, you mentioned PAO and you mentioned learning curves that have been talked about for most studies, whether modified, done, surgical hip dislocation, all these things. And, you know, as a young surgeon, if it's my 13 year old and they're going to see Dr. Holt for his fourth tether, Mm -hmm. or they're going to go two hours or four hours away and see someone for their 204th. I mean, my kid's going to the guy with 204. But so as a, as a young surgeon, right. When I read learning curves and I hear people in conference, some people very much say like, no, this should be done by, you know, a select cohort of surgeons at a select centers across the States and no one else should, should tackle this learning curve. And again, as someone who enjoys these surgeries and wants to become one of the experts at them, right. I have to, I have to take the steep curve and I have to do it. So how do you, how do you help me rationalize that in my brain of knowing that there's going to be a curve and knowing that I'm going to have to get through it and kind of not taking a step back and saying, hey, I can easily send them up the road to someone who's been through the curve. Well, I mean, I think that if you, if it's pat, if it's a passion for you and you think in your mind that you've done everything you can to prepare for that case, meaning you've gone, you've done the reading, you've done the visiting, you've watched the videos and you think that you can do it and you're going to continue to do it, then I think that it's at that point that then you institute it and you're willing to go through it. I think that if you're half interested or you think that it's a either monetary pressure or case volume pressure thing, then I think that that those are, those are where this road leads you to peril. Um, and you know, I mean, look at my paper. We went through a learning curve at the Mayo Clinic, you know, whatever world's best hospital. That's what they talk about all the time. We still went through a learning curve ourselves. And so as long as you understand the parameters and you're open to the families that are there with you, you'd be surprised with how many families are willing to go along with you on your journey. I mean, that was where number our patient number one, our patient number one said, we went and visited Philadelphia, we went and visited San Diego, and we want you and Dr. Larson to do this case. And so that is where the relationship with the family comes down to. And 
you have to be open with them and say, look, you know, you're, you might have these complications that have been listed, but I know how to deal with all of those complications that are listed. What you really don't want to do is have the disaster ones, which is why I think the CT guided navigation saves you from any kind of disaster for the most part. I'm just related to that. You know, Jason Brooks interviewed Peter Newton on the SRS podcast about his IMAS paper regarding the five-year outcomes and mm -hmm. asked a similar question that I just asked you, Todd. And Newton said something to the uh, degree of, you know, talking to the young surgeon who's thinking about doing this and just the burden that actually places on you mentally. Um, you know, he was like, if you're, because at one point he was experimenting with this as well. And he said, if you are going to be doing that, Think of the burden it's going to take on you in terms of the preparation and the mental toll that it would have if you had a complication. Just like you have to be ready to do that. It is not for the faint of heart. Um, I thought that was very poignant. I hadn't even thought of the effect on me. Um, I always thought of the patient who's signing up for it. I personally think that to the, uh, the other point uh, to, to Josh, Josh's question is, I think it's going to start getting easier to learn how to do these things. It's just like anything else. When PAOs first came out, there was like three people in the United States that could do it. And then suddenly that ripple effect of the people that trained there, and then they started having courses, and then they started having it at IPOS. You're going to start seeing ways and abilities to start picking up these concepts without having to basically be the person shuddering on the end of the diving board like, am I going to actually make it in the pool? And so I think that over time, if you're not willing to kind of be a pioneer and figure it out for yourself when there's not a lot of information out there, which is what we had to do, we kind of had to make it up. Eventually, you know, it's, we're a group of, of academic surgeons that eventually that knowledge starts to be purveyed across the United States and the world on how to do this better. Josh, that was a great question. That's, I think, something that every new surgeon, everyone hosting this yeah. podcast, I'm sure, wrestles with. Dr. Milbrand, I know you've, you've thought about this a ton. Um, where should we go in terms of creating that ripple effect you mentioned? Should we be visiting other centers? Should we have, should we have the experts? You know, we talked at the, the meeting about coaching. There's a session on surgical coaching. Should we have coaches like you visiting places that are picking up? Um, is this something that should be sort of centralized and through POSNA? Like, where do you think as a field we can go to, to minimize this learning curve and the risk to our patients? Well, I mean, I, the company that makes the implant now has some amount of built-in coaching that you're supposed to do. But, you know, I, I am an industry person. I like to, I mean, they bring a lot of things to the table, but personally, I think this comes down to your connection to other surgeons. You want to hear from other surgeons what they learned and how they learned it. And so I think that either happens with you visiting places or people visiting you and watching you do it, however that, that ends up happening. And you will have mentors, you know, either you train with or we are planning, for example, a, a course in the next two years where people could come and we'll stack you all up and we'll have you run on, an, on a cadaver. And my guess is that Pretty soon, at, it's not going to happen this year, but at, at IPOS next year, my guess is that there'll be a station where you can start to do these things so that you can feel comfortable with it. And it doesn't have to be, you know, I'm going to do this case tomorrow. You can say, well, I'm going to do this case in a year from now. And between now and then, these are the places I'm going to go and the things I'm going to learn about. And then I have one other question for you. So I, you know, all the all four of us watched Dr. Newton and Dr. Yaze do this without a uh, approach surgeon. Yeah. And certainly my mind that makes sense as I saw them do it and, and learned to do it myself. 
Is that crazy? Do you need an approach surgeon? Well, I mean, I have to tell you that we had our first take back for um, kind of an acute blood loss, you know, acute hemopneumothorax, and it was really nice to have the general surgeon there. (laughs) I think that if you are by yourself and you're not doing a lot of anterior spine surgery now, meaning you haven't done a lot of thoracoscopy, uh, you know, as a part of your practice, then having that person there, at least at the beginning, uh, you know, your first X number of cases, 15, 20 cases, um, I think is super helpful. And so I probably at this point would not recommend doing it without that unless you're at a big academic center where you have a Peter Newton that could come into your operating room and help you. Um, but I enjoy, you know, at Mayo, it's a, it's a collaborative place where we're supposed to be doing. That's kind of the expectation. And I don't, you know, we're lucky that way. And so I personally feel like I enjoy that conversation. And I think he's made our operation better uh, than if I would have just done it on my own. Like he brought tools and equipment and, you know, poise that I didn't even know existed. Um, and I think that, that that helps me make the operation better, safer, quicker. And then bending oh. out to less than 35 to transition to the next study. (laughs) How are you going to assess that? That's right. You know, Josh, I was trying to come up with the transition and (laughs) I think you just nailed it. So let's talk about flexibility and x-rays and maybe we won't talk very long. I don't think it warrants quite as much discussion. Um, So the title of this one is uh, comparison of slot scanning, standing, supine and fulcrum radiographs for assessment of curve flexibility in adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, a pilot study. Um, this is from uh, Lauren uh, Swanee, Noel Larson, um, Pedabayak, and you. Spine deformity as well. Same month, you, two articles in spine deformity. So I think I was interested in this because I just recently moved uh, institutions. And at UNC, I was getting standing bending films. Um, they were not doing that at Vanderbilt. They're getting kind of the wanky classic supine bending films, but they have an EOS here. And I was like, well, I should get them standing up in the EOS. And the x-ray techs looked like I was crazy. And then I read this probably like two weeks later. And I was like, oh, yes. Um, So anyway, I read it with bated breath. I hope our audience feels the same. Um, (laughs) The purpose of this study was to compare the various methods of pre-op bending radiographs. And um, the methods are... I will say slightly convoluted. You couldn't just take the same cohort and test all the different x-ray views. IRB obviously wouldn't approve that. Um, but you did take cohorts and you kind of compared, you know, were they roughly the same curve pre-bend and, um, and you compared them. And so um, I'll actually kind of leave it to you to maybe describe what your, what the groups you were comparing were and then what you kind of found, if you don't mind. Yeah. So, I mean, we really just looked at, how correctable each of, you know, a thoracic curve would be with each or a thoracic or lumbar curve would be with each of these different methods. Um, And so we kind of took as our uh, gold standards, well, how correctable was it? And we thought that over an average amount of time, we would kind of have the same amount of stiff curves as we would have flexible curves in each one of these cohorts. That that was kind of the leap of faith that we had to make with the article. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, personally think 
Uh, it worked out okay, but you're right. I mean, it would be better if it was in the same patient you would do all these, but there's no way anybody's going to let us, you know, x-ray a child seven different ways uh, just to prove a point. And so this is as close, I think, as we could we could get. And it really bore out of, again, Dr. Larson's long work on trying to decrease radiation in kids. You know, if you look at back at her, her kind of library of many, many articles, it's down that same road of trying to reduce radiation both intraoperatively and now uh, with the EOS machine outside of the operating room. And what we really found was that the bending films, uh, standing bending films did a great job in your lumbar spine. In the lumbar curves, they were just as good as the supine. In the thoracic curves, they were not as good. Um, but the fulcrum bend really uh, was great for the thoracic curve. So you could decrease your radiation. And this is what we do is we get standing. Our protocol now is we get standing films in EOS. Um, and then we get a um, fulcrum bend to make sure that it bends less than 35 degrees for our tether patients. But we, uh, but I don't get a fulcrum bend on my uh, AIS patients because it doesn't really matter to me. I'm going to instrument the thoracic curve if that's the structural curve in these kids anyway. So it doesn't really matter to me how correctable it is uh, in those situations. Okay, and so just to clarify, the fulcrum bend is performed standing in the EOS machine. No, no, Correct. sorry. The fulcrum bend is a X-ray that is taken in the regular X-ray suite. And it's a in a lateral position, but they're shooting an AP, and I it's see. over a and it's over a over, over a bolster. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so that my question for you is going to be, you know, because this study was born out of the fact that you had a couple surgeons doing it one way, a couple doing the other way, and hey, who's you know are these the same or comparable, et cetera? So has everyone in your group now switched to your new protocol as you just described? I would say most of the time, right? I mean, every, but every uh, we have a few older surgeons in my group, and um, I would say that they've done it most of the time. Sometimes they still want it, <clears throat> want it the old way, and so they get it the old way. Um, you know, it's you know, if, if you've been practicing thirty years and doing it the same way, there's little that uh, is going to change your mind most of the time in that. But I mean, I have to say that it's been well received, and I would say most of the time things have changed. I was not a believer in the standing bending in the EOS because I just didn't think that they could bend in the box enough. Yeah, right? is there enough room in the phone left. booth? Right, they yeah. just run into the box. But we now have it so our x-ray techs work with them to really kind of shift their hips to the side of the box so that then when they're bending over, they actually don't bonk into the side of the box. So, um, so we've been much happier with our bending, standing bending EOS. Images. All right. Can I go down the line with um, uh, the other hosts? How do you guys do your bending images? I do traditional supine, but actually after this came up at the annual meeting, I'd actually sitting there in the annual meeting, I sent a message uh, to our spine coordinator and said, I'd like to start doing them upright in the EOS. So we will yeah. see. Right. And I guess for those lanky fives and sixes, like uh, the paper mentioned, and maybe we'll add in a, a supine bender for those. Josh? Yeah, um, historically had been doing them in the EOS, and for a few reasons, I'm currently doing them supine benders. I love the idea. You know, Dr. Lawner, who does the tether course and did the course when I went, you know, did all, all of his over a bolster. 
and it was the only one kind of in the group that did it like that. And the logic would tell you that a, a thoracic curve would bend out better over a bolster. So that's good to see this. And I like that you guys have kind of instrumented or implemented it to use when you're considering tether. I think that makes sense that that's really when it matters to make sure that curve bends out um, for tethering. So it kind of things that I've thought about that you guys put some applicability and some data to. So it's good. We're not the ones that invented the bolster, by the way. I mean, there's tons of data from Asia from the group in Singapore that, I mean, they write about it all the time that bolster is way better than, uh, than regular benders. So we just kind of interpreted what they were doing. Julia, do you want to talk about what you're doing for your spine trauma when you're trying to check their flexibility pre-op? <laughs> yeah, generally uh, staying away from bending films. If, if you find me doing a spine bending film, then something has gone terribly wrong. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, all right, guys, um, let's go to the lightning round. Anyone want to volunteer to go first? Sure. Um, all right. So first up, we have a paper out of TSRH. It was recently in JPOB. Lead author Jeffrey Peck and uh, senior author Harry Kim. It is called Prolonged Non-Weight-Bearing Treatment Decreases Femoral Head Deformity Compared to Symptomatic Treatment in the Initial Stage of Perthes. First off, let's go down the line again. Just see what what are people doing. Well, Todd, why don't we why don't we start with you for uh, time's sake and maybe stop with you as well? Uh, do you factor in non weight bearing in your uh, treatment of Perthes kids? No, I think that the idea that you could make a six year old non weight bearing is unreasonable, unless you decide to put them in a spike cast and in a you know in a chair or something. I just don't know how you do that. Um, I mean, I think that in theory you. It, it might help, but the practicality of putting, you know, whatever that six to eight year old non-weight bearing for a long time. I mean, it's, if you look at that, I mean, it's a long period of time. Uh, I just think that it's unreasonable. And this paper was a long period of time and it definitely put some uh, parenting skills to the test in Dallas, I would assume. Um, but basically in the study, uh, patients with early perthes, so like some sclerosis or very early fragmentation, who did not want surgery, treated with at least six months, in one case up to 17 months of non-weight bearing. The comparison group also had some non-weight bearing, so uh, it's definitely a different practice, but the comparison group was symptomatic non-weight bearing, so when they hurt, they were told not to weight bear. And the authors found uh, a big difference between the groups. Overall, they recommend if you do have a patient with early perthes, especially if they have substantial hypoperfusion, like over 40% on a perfusion MRI, and the patients don't want surgery, because it sounds like surgery was the recommendation in almost all these cases, then um, their recommendation is that at least six months of non-weight bearing is going to make a difference. Carter, what was the the outcome? You mentioned it was a sphericity of the head. Was that based off of just classification, sphericity, and they had pretty good follow-up. They had uh, at least out to skeletal maturity or five years, um, and they found uh, statistical differences in uh, multiple measurements. So it was was pretty convincing, uh, but obviously a battle. Sorry. How did they measure measure? not weight bearing? In other words, did they measure compliance? No. I I mean, I think that until we've done... A couple of these things and club feeds and other things that what we think is happening and what they're really doing are two totally different things. Yep, fair enough. Put pins across the joint and distract it. <laughs> you know, this gives some credence to it. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of questions about how much the how much they're complying, but there was a big difference between the two groups. Yep. Um, so something to think about. 
Uh, you know, you know, it, like you said, theoretically, it sure makes sense. If that head's fragmenting, keep the weight off of it. Yeah. Seems like it should help. And it, it's worked in his uh, pig model, too. I don't know if you guys read of that work, but his pig models, he's amputated below the knee of the affected side to, to make sure that that pig doesn't weight bear on that side. And the non-weight bearing makes a difference in those in that part of the model, too. So it's an extension of, of what I think he found that way. They did not do that in the study. I think, I think they ran into IRB problems. <laughs> I think so. so next up, a study out of China. This one is a recent study in JPO. It is called Human Position Brace versus Pavlik Harness for Infants Under Six Months of Age with a Developmental Dislocation. So not just dysplasia, but dislocation of the hip. And so I do have a question for you, for you guys, but uh, that'll be at the end. So they basically looked at a large cohort of patients with dislocated or Ortolani positive hips, and they compared the kids that were treated with a Pavlik versus those treated with a quote-unquote human position brace. So this is essentially a, uh, a rigid brace that holds the hips in abduction, and it also extends beyond the knees to the leg and holds the knees at 90 degrees as well. So it's a little different than the sort of semi-rigid abduction brace that I think most of us probably use as a backup for a pavlik harness. The older infants, which means four to six months, uh, had much better results with the brace and really pretty impressively different results. Uh, 64% success in reduction versus 11%. In the young infants, zero to three months, there was no difference, but it was that four to six month infant that uh, really had a difference. And also, maybe more impressively, um, as sort of a sub-analysis, they looked at 16 patients who failed Pavlik and then were put in the uh, human position brace, and 11 of them reduced. So the authors suggest that basically for those kids with a dislocation that comes in late at sort of four to six months, you should definitely consider this type of human position brace if the Pavlik fails and probably as a first-line treatment. So, you know, I didn't go through all the numbers, but they're impressive. Does this uh, encourage anyone to, to do bracing, whether it's a human position brace or more of like a rhino semi-rigid abduction brace as a first-line treatment in these older infants? Probably not. Uh, and, you know, I mean, the, the braces that came originally out of Austria was this and created avascular necrosis, right? So, I mean, I think that we have to be very careful about fixed abduction I mean, I might consider it as a rescue option if the public's not working, because at that point I'm throwing everything I can at it. Um, right. But uh, but it would be something that I would probably use as second line treatment first. Carter, I wanted to ask, you know, the difference between this brace and the public. So it's it's rigid abduction and rigidly controlling the knee. Is that correct? I mean, so that, correct. I mean, so it's kind of doing what our spike cast would do, except it's not a cast. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's true. I mean, you, you know, you can take it off for, for hygiene and so forth. But yes, there's a illustration in the paper. It's pretty wide abduction. There's not a lot of detail about the specific sort of goals of what the, bra the position the brace tries to put the leg in in terms of abduction. So obviously you don't have that same control like when you put on a spike and you can find the safe zone, which is probably yeah, the, the AVN risk right there, too much abduction. Just to throw this out there, I mean, when we're doing open reductions or even a closed repositioning or reduction, now, we're not often externally rotating the leg, you know, but in a spica or sorry, in a pavlik, when you get those x-rays, I mean, the legs are very externally rotated or even the, the rhino abduction brace. And so um, I've often wondered, you know, if we could control the rotation more internally rotating that segment 
um, with some sort of device, would that be helpful? So from that standpoint, I'm intrigued. And I've heard of a few people speaking of reversing the straps on the Pavlik, uh, not FDA approved, do not try this at home, um, to kind of put a more internal rotation moment on the leg, which again, I think all this needs a lot more information to bear it out. But I do think that, you know, mechanically speaking, I mean, I've, you, you don't leave the OR in a spica cast with the legs as externally rotated as you do when you put them in a pavlik harness. And so uh, maybe there is some room for improvement there. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. That does not seem to be the difference in this study because this brace also holds them in a lot of external rotation. A lot of external. It all, I mean, from the diagrams, it, it really looks like probably more than the pavlik um, and also sort of full time. But I mean, great point. Like, you know, we know that a sort of abduction internal rotation really seats the, the femoral head and the acetabulum. You know, some some of the braces, was it the St. Louis brace for uh, for Perthes, holds sort of abduction internal rotation intentionally to try to seat the head in there. And, you know, some people argue that that's why it works better than a brace that doesn't extend beyond the knee and control rotation as much. So great point. Why, why wouldn't we want it internally rotated? I can't get you to not talk about Perthes, can I? we got a couple more studies i'm gonna try to work it in every time (laughs) um who's next i can go i'll just do one quick one so uh the four of you how many castings have you done for metatarsis adductus in the last three years zero Zero here zero 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 across the board i think i've done one so one out of five of us so this study is interesting it's out of uh, israel uh daniel friedman is the uh, the first author using the unfo the universal neonatal foot orthotic which is a below the ankle orthosis that they use to treat metatarsis adductus and the question was that they had 147 feet in seven years in 94 patients which just seemed like a lot this is just one center that they are treating and uh, a little more than half of them were treated with, with casting and then bracing and 50 of them were treated with this unfo brace. Um, so it just seemed like, seemed like a whole lot. And I don't know the demographics or the etiology of metatarsis adductus to know why there would be so much more in Israel than there are at least what sounds like a pretty widespread cohort of American um, surgeons, but they showed that this that the success rate was similar, that the correction was similar, that the total time of, of intervention was similar um, and complications slightly less. And the thought is that it makes it a little more palatable for families who can have a brace that can go on and off and they apply and it's not casting and the hygiene issues with casting and such. So an interesting idea. Um, they've got some cool pictures. It looks like a little interesting little brace. None of them have conflicts, which I was glad to see. Um, but just the volume, I I was surprised to see their volume of number of patients treated where it seems to be a very much less treated than disease, at least in this country. Yeah. I mean, I think it's less about the, you know, it's, it's probably seeing us, but I feel like we've been trained to just say, Oh, it's going to get better and it won't be a problem. And part of that is cause I'm like, well, that's easier than casting it for six weeks because again, I still don't think it's going to be a problem. So I don't want to put you through that. But if you have a brace that works, like, I mean, that shortens your conversation with the families quite a bit because they just, some of them just want it fixed and they don't care what you tell them. It's going to look like in 10 years. Like they want to be doing something for it. Yeah. Um, I so mean, I, I think that's there's some rationale I, there. Yeah. That's I, I tell families to do some stretching and stuff. Cause like you said, I think people want to do something this, that wouldn't be the case in this study. Cause they had 95 over the first uh, several years of, of casting and splinting. So still a pretty mm-hmm. high number, but 
Well, look for it. You can use it at the Nashville, the UNFO. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pulling it up right now. All right, Julia, what you got for us? Yeah, I'll finish this out. So I've got two papers. We'll start with um, a paper um, out of CHLA on improved bowel function with oral methyl naltrexone following posterior spinal fusion for adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. So um, this is a study that was sort of a case control that looked at um, kids after posterior spinal fusions that got a regular bowel regimen. So everything, you know, kind of standard stuff that we give um, and, a, and a group that received oral methylnaltrexone, which is a peripheral opioid antagonist that's used a lot um, in the oncology world, but hasn't been used a lot um, in pediatrics. And so they looked at kids that got that oral methylnaltrexone versus kids that didn't and basically um, figured out how long it took them to poop. So um, question for you guys is um, what percent of the control group, so the patients who didn't get this, do you think had a bowel movement by day two, by post-op day two? Everybody's giving me the same zeros for the metatarsis. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's giving me zeros. And actually, so their control group, they actually had 30% of kids that were able to have a bowel movement by, by post-op day two, which I I think is impressive. Um, so, uh, squeezing them like toothpaste, man. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, so what do you guys think? Um, the group that got the oral methyl and naltrexone, what do you think? What percent of them knowing that their control group, 30% had a bowel movement, by day two, how how what percent do you think had a bowel movement uh, by day two on, on the the study group? Where, where was the paper published? Uh, this is CHLA. A lot of grains, two thirds diets out 68, there. percent. Yeah, Was this 60%. include like a cleanse or not? Uh, no, uh, there there was no apparently no juice cleansing. I'm not sure about the wheatgrass. You know, I apologize um, to our California listeners. Yeah, uh, we love you, California. But it's um, jealousy, most likely. Um, <laughs> sorry, Ken Ellingworth. Yeah, you guys are right. So 60. percent So they actually doubled the number of patients that were able to have bowel movement by day two. And as we all know, and you know, we like to joke about having a, a bowel movement, but um, bowel activity does actually actually, you know, seem to increase people's, um, you know, ability to mobilize, um, their ability to get out of the hospital. So, um, does have some pretty significant implications for, for a care pathway. So, especially as I think a lot of centers move towards bringing, um, kind of quality, Mm -hmm. uh, checklists, you know, and protocols for their spinal fusions. I think this is definitely something to consider and and not just for spinal fusions, for anybody that's going to be on an opioid. And one other thing I did want to point out, um, because it's an opioid antagonist, you know, there was some concern that is this going to actually increase the number of opioids that these kids need to take or increase uh, their pain during their hospital stay? And it actually didn't at all. Um, same, same kind of pain scores that the control group had. Um, and uh, they did actually have a lower length of a shorter length of stay than the control group. Um, and so I think definitely something to consider. Obviously, it's been tested in adults and on the oncology floors for a while. And so um, if you're looking for something to, to get your, your post-op spines to get out faster or poop faster, then con- consider this. Get them moving. That and chewing gum. There you go. So we've got one other paper. Um, so this is about surgical treatment of solitary periarticular osteochondromas about the knee in pediatric and adolescent patients. And this is out of Boston Children's, um, Benton Hayworth, and uh, first author was Mark Wu. 
Um, and so this is just a really nice review paper. So I'd recommend anybody that has an opportunity to see this. Um, this is, it's a JBJS um, US uh, review and it's just got some really nice pictures in it. Um, it's a great one for like journal clubs and stuff for, for learners. Um, but uh, so they, they basically looked at a real long period of solitary osteochondromas around the knee. And they found that the majority of them were pedunculated uh, at the distal femur and were medial versus lateral. Um, and that, uh, you know, one of the things that I think these patients ask about, because it, it, it does seem, I think, to some of these families, like a big surgery, you know, you're taking out a big chunk of bone and sometimes the approach is a little bit gnarly and they did find that most of their patients were adolescent boys. And so these kids want to get back to sports, right? And so one of their interesting findings was that uh, 96% of the patients were returned to full sports at a median of 2.5 months. So I think that's a little kind of helpful to, to give your patients something to, you know, say you, I can almost guarantee that you're going to be back to full sports participation by three months, even, even if we are taking out a pretty big chunk of your femur or your tibia. So that's something helpful. Um, one other kind of interesting finding that I'm, I'm going to quiz you guys on. So um, they looked at who did the surgery, which is sort of interesting, right? Like what type of surgeon is going to do this surgery? Um, and so they looked at um, procedures performed by orthopedic oncologists, um, by pediatric orthopedists, and then also by pediatric orthopedic sports medicine surgeons. So a question for you guys, do you think there was any difference in outcomes or in complications between those three groups of surgeons? This could get controversial. Sports surgeons had no complications. <laughs> no difference. I think yeah, the pediatric no general, the generalist does the best. There you go. Yeah. Pete's ortho has the best. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So there's actually no difference. So turns out anybody can go in and lop one of these off pretty safely. Uh, which so is good. Of course, we will we'll, uh, rag on our, our sports medicine colleagues too. Um, but it turns out they're also capable of this. So, um, but just a really nice review. Definitely check it out. They've got some great images in there. So, okay. Nice. Well, um, thank you guys. The last thing I just wanted to uh, mention. So, um, you know, we've talked about incorporating J-Posm on here. I don't know how many of you guys review that um, when that comes out. Uh, regularly, I feel like I download every article I see and I'm like, I need to read this. It doesn't really lend itself great to our format here because it's not like new research. A lot of it is current concept reviews that I think everyone could benefit from. So I just wanted to say to our listeners, like if you haven't seen that publication, uh, really check it out. It's all online and easy to find. And we'll provide a link in the show notes. Um, I was going to give a shout out. So there is a new series on early onset scoliosis treatment. Um, and Grant Hogue is uh, kind of headlining that. And he said that uh, their goal is to create a repository of information that is easily accessible for learners on all stages. And so this, uh, this latest episode, um, they have an article that's kind of reviewing the first generation of techniques in early onset scoliosis. And then there's a great article with an accompanying uh, video on casting and early onset scoliosis. Um, I know we're a little short on time, but um, Todd, I did want to just get your thoughts on EOS treatment. You've kind of got a bigger picture view than I think we do. And so what would you say, like how some tangible ways in which EOS treatment has changed since your time on kind of the PEDS ortho scene, maybe, maybe in the way that we think about it. Um, I'm just interested in what that perspective was, has yeah. been like over the past. 
Well, I, um, along a similar line as, as Tether is I wasn't taught how to do metacasting in my fellowship. So I had to learn how to do that. So I went and visited a couple of people. I watched a bunch of videos. Uh, it was early on in kind of the video thing that uh, Posner put out a video on how to do a metacast at one of the meetings. And that was like a really big deal. So I incorporate casting early and often because as long as I can delay a child having a growing rod, uh, the better. And I really feel that that is because you get a certain amount of time with growing rods and that after that time period, the spine just stops moving. And so if you can kick that can down the road and you're still controlling the curve with the cast, then you're winning that game as best that you can. And there are some kids who beat the cast. They have bad pathology. They have genetic, they have whatever that I think those are the kids that you have to intervene early on and you can then choose whatever one that you want. I think that our big enthusiasm for magic is really starting to maybe fall off the other side. Um, but I would think that over the next few years, we'll probably be putting in less magnetic rods and going back to kind of more based on pathology growing rods versus regular, you know, uh, magnetic growing rods. So that's where I think that things have changed. And that's where I think it's going, but you know, that's just kind of my gestalt from from reading the tea leaves right now. So um, casting is something that seems to be withstanding the test of time, and really has been a, you know, is is least it's not that technologically advanced, but it seems to be very functional and practical. And um, if you want to learn how to do it or refine your technique a little bit, check out the Jay Posner article and video. Um, guys, it's been great month. Um, appreciate everyone joining us for this late night session. We'll try and get it edited and published out. Yeah. And before we wrap it up, I just also want to direct everyone who's got some free time to listen to some podcasts over to interview with the PD pod as always, uh, upcoming episode with drawer Paley is a great one. And for those, uh, scope jockeys out there who are not too offended by our, uh, gentle, mockery um please check out peds sports we've been working hard on it and uh, i think there's some uh, some good content um i learn stuff every time we do an episode thanks to our guest todd milbrandt from mayo clinic uh, rochester minnesota appreciate having you here appreciate all your pearls thanks for the uh the tips on tethering um yeah. and then lastly listeners thank you all um please send us your feedback peds podcast at gmail.com and uh join us next month until then stay safe Thanks, you guys. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Thank Thank you. Thank you.